0: Hey, I'm Amelia, and I'm going to be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If any of you has a dispute with one another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters... Do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this is in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? "'Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, "'and you do this to your brothers and sisters. "'Or do you not know that wrongdoers "'will not inherit the kingdom of God? "'Do not be deceived. "'Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, "'nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, "'nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, "'nor slanderers, slanderers, nor swindlers "'will inherit the kingdom of God. "'And that is what some of you were. "'But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead. And he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and untie and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? But it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits outside the body but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies.
1: Good evening, everyone. Uh, If we haven't met yet, my name is Ken. I'm one of the pastors here at WBC, and uh, it's great that you can be with us uh, continuing our series in the book of 1 Corinthians. Now, we've had God's word read for us already, and as always, we need God's enabling to both understand it and to put it into practice. So let's pray to that end. Lord Jesus, we thank you that uh, you're a generous God who doesn't leave us in the darkness wondering what we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to live. Uh, and we thank you that uh, there were problems in Corinth, which meant that Paul wrote this down so that many, many, many years later, We could have it. We could have it read out to us and we could stop and think about it so that we would know how to respond uh, to what Jesus has done on our behalf. And so we ask now that by your Holy Spirit, you would work in us, enable us not only to understand, but to put this into practice so you'd be glorified by our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, John 3.16 is undoubtedly the world's best-known Bible verse. But two verses from tonight's passage have recently had their time in the limelight. Almost two years ago, Israel Falao posted this now infamous paraphrase of 1 Corinthians 6 verses 9 and 10 on Instagram. As you can see in the accompanying comment, Folau's intent was to alert non-Christians to the danger of a variety of sins and also to let them know of Jesus' love, which can save us from all sin. Australian Rugby Union officials took great offence at what they claimed was an attack on homosexuals. Flowers' post was judged as hate speech, worthy not only of sacking, but permanent prohibition from any form of football. Now, I know that some of you couldn't care less what a footballer posts on Instagram. I empathise with that. But the range of responses to his post and the very public battle that followed have been very revealing. Some side with Izzy, saying what a great thing he did, using his fame to get the Christian message of grace out there into the public sphere. Others are a little bit more hesitant, agreeing that what he posted is true, but disagreeing with the insensitive way that he communicated that truth. The last group, and probably the majority, think that Izzy is a bigot, attempting to ram outdated nonsense down people's throats. Now, I mention this incident right at the start here, not because it's the main point of our passage, but precisely because it isn't. This saga demonstrates very, very clearly that context matters. If we focus too narrowly, plucking words out of their context or even if we quote words accurately, we can still miss their intended point. So I'm not going to try to persuade you tonight to hold any of the positions I've just described. Rather, what I want us to do is to zoom out. And the first thing that we'll notice, if we do, is that Paul puts two seemingly unconnected issues right next to each other. Verses 1 to 11 refer to Christians Uh, suing other Christians in the secular legal system, while in verses 12 to 9, they're all about sexual immorality. While they may at first appear completely unrelated, my suggestion is that together these two passages address the issue, why are some behaviours out of bounds for Christians? To which Paul gives two answers. Firstly, because motives matter and secondly, because our bodies matter. So looking at the first answer in verses 1 to 11, why are some behaviours out of bounds for Christians? Well, because motives matter. In my Bible, this section is given the title, Lawsuits Among Believers, and it does appear that verse 1 is introducing a new topic. But when we recall chapter 5's focus on the requirement for the church to judge sinning Christians it becomes clear that chapter 6 is in fact a development of that theme. Verse 1, If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Now the further mention of court in verse 6 and lawsuits in verse 7 clarify that some Corinthian Christians were using the secular legal system to obtain enforceable judgments. Judgments that had some real bite. Last week, we saw that Paul demanded that if a Christian defiantly and publicly continues to sin, they must be publicly disciplined by the church. But the harshest punishment possible was exclusion from the church. He instructed the Corinthians to judge with the twin goals of restoring the straying brother or sister and to prevent the acceptance of sin within the church. The motive behind Christian judgment done right is to benefit others. And it's for this reason that chapter Six's alternate step of pursuing justice in the courts is condemned, because motive matters. Paul's initial rebuke is that taking others to court is ludicrous given the future role that Christians will play. The Lord's people, verse 2, that is Christians, are in the future going to judge the world. Verse 3, this even extends to a role in judging the angels, which sounds like a pretty huge responsibility, And, and we probably want Paul to give us some further information of what this looks like. But Paul's goal is not to inform them about their future. He wants to shame them for how they are behaving in their present the Christians at Corinth should be embarrassed. They are going to be judges with more authority over more significant cases than the highest judge in the land deals with. So are they really that incapable of dealing with trivial matters? Imagine for a moment being at the dinner table where little Johnny and his sister Susie are having a fight over who gets the last piece of garlic bread. Sure, it's very hard to imagine. Johnny's going to grow up to be a High Court judge. Susie will be the Attorney General. But this pair of children employ a local magistrate to pronounce judgment regarding this piece of bread. Wouldn't we all agree calling in a judge to make a decision in such a petty situation a massive overkill? That the only possible explanation for such behavior is immaturity. Well, likewise, Christians suing Christians is ridiculous. Paul doesn't even indicate what kind of cases were being brought or detail what the alternative procedure was. But his point is that any Christian is capable of sorting out all the issues of this life, whether they are relational disputes, financial debates, arguments about responsibilities or roles. They may seem like a huge deal to us right now, but that's only because our perspective is too narrow, too focused on ourselves, too immature. Paul tells the Corinthians to grow up. Life is not about possessions or money or power or social standing. Fighting for those kind of things is arguing over the temporary, the insignificant, the unimportant. But what's even worse than their immaturity is that non-Christians are watching as Christians are fighting it out, verse 6. And so if we sink to the level of using the court system to get what we want, then we have already failed, verse 7. Failed what? I take it to mean fail in our witness to a watching world. Jesus said that by our love for one another, people will know that we are his disciples. But love is certainly not the message communicated by suing your brother or sister. With their words, Christians were saying that the most important thing in the world is our relationship with God and the resultant relationships with one another. But then they were showing by their actions that money and power and social status are the real goal. When I worked as a physio, it was in a clinic with a range of other health professionals, and one of the doctors that I got on really well with could regularly be found just outside the front of the building having a smoke. He told his patients when they came to see him that smoking is bad for you, but he proved by his actions that he didn't actually believe it. Which mirrors Paul's point here. How do you expect to convince people of the truth and the value of the death and resurrection of Jesus when it hasn't even changed what you consider to be most important. The right motive to judge in chapter 5 was to win people. The wrong motive to judge in chapter 6 is to win arguments, to chase after merely earthly treasure. So what should we do instead? Look at verse 7. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Now, clearly Paul has no interest in hiding this kind of bad behaviour away from non-Christian scrutiny. And he wasn't even denying that some of the Corinthians had legitimate complaints. The bigger issue was the wrong priorities of Christians were leading them to use inappropriate means to chase after wrong goals. They were so determined to get their rights that they had concluded that the end justifies any means. Rather than thinking of others, putting others before self, the Corinthian Christians were willing to do the wrong thing to get what they wanted. There was no intent to bring about a sinner's restoration, no aim to protect the church. This was all about what they could get for themselves. It was, and it is, unbridled selfishness. Paul's point is that Christians cannot live this way in response to being saved. We should be the ones willing to be wronged, never the ones doing wrong to others. And it's at this point that Paul inserts what Folau posted as a meme. Folau's goal was to identify behaviour that non-Christians need to repent of. But Paul has a very different audience in mind. He includes this list of obvious sins for Christians. The point is, is that their fighting with fellow Christians is of exactly the same nature as idolatry and drunkenness and sexual immorality. Their arguing and manipulation and selfish use of the legal system are equivalent to being a thief. But we don't stop any of those behaviours in order to be accepted by God we stopped those behaviours because we were accepted by God. That's what verse 11 says is true of them already. This is what some of you were, past tense. Jesus paid the price of sin so that we could be welcomed into his kingdom, forgiven from all manner of rebellion against God. And so as members of his kingdom, we must now live in the way that the king has declared is right Why is cheating others, wronging them to get what we want out of the house? Because we've been rescued from that way of life, freed from sin to flee from sin, not freed from sin to continue on in it. Now, I think that most of us would be horrified to be accused of this level of selfish abuse. I've never sued anyone, let alone a fellow Christian, so, so surely Paul's not pointing the finger at me. But his point is that we do have to recognise the motive which underlies all of these bad behaviours. Verses 9 to 10 are not a list of random sins or even examples of the worst types of sin. The thing in common to all of them is there's an observable negative effect on others brought about by our selfishness. And so though we might avoid the extreme of initiating legal action. Are we guilty of mistreating our Christian sisters and brothers to get what we want or believe that we have a right to? Is our selfishness expressed in manipulating others from church, making them feel guilty or accusing them of favouritism in order that we get them to do what we want them to do? Do we demand that others think the way that we do on debatable issues or dismiss them when we disagree with them on social media? Historically, debates amongst Christians have been about alcohol and dancing and beliefs about the end times. Today, it is far more likely to be over which political party you support, your view on climate change or the most volatile issue of all, COVID. The principle that comes through clearly here is that our conclusions, whatever they are, do not allow us to demand that others come to the same conclusions we have. And even if we have truth on our side, there will be times when we relinquish our rights. I read this week of a church that chose to sing last week, even though the same freedom is not currently extended to all of our sisters and brothers. When WBC leadership made the same decision, uh, it was a sad thing. We recognised that some people would be here and wouldn't be able to sing. But whatever you think of the medical and scientific basis to the government's decision, this is a very sad thing. But even more sad is that after the service at this other church, some people confronted the leadership and it quickly descended into swearing at the leaders for their insensitivity shown in making that decision. And my question is, how can Christians ever conclude that abuse of others is an appropriate way to argue for your rights. That swearing at someone is a valid means of disputing what we can and can't do. That slandering someone online or talking behind someone's back is justifiable. Now, if we only apply the explicit requirement of 1 Corinthians 6, they could say, well, there isn't a court case in sight. And yet surely Paul's point is that kind of behaviour is exactly what Jesus has rescued us from. Call it what you will, selfishness, selfism, looking after number one. It is our natural motivation because of the sin within us. And so we must be perpetually on guard against letting this sin back into our lives. Because Jesus died for it, we must be fleeing from it. Now, I think we also need to accept that in practice this is a very complicated issue. There are situations in which Paul's explicit instruction to not take a Christian to court do not apply. Child abuse and domestic violence are clear examples where reporting it to the authorities is not motivated by the victim selfishly seeking a personal benefit. Paul doesn't want injustice swept under the carpet just because it's done by Christians. And so it's right and necessary that cases like that be dealt with by the legal system. But what if the situation isn't clear? When we lived in Thailand, both a church building and the school that the kids went to became the subject of court cases. Property given by a Christian or purchased at full price were later contested by others. Do you defend yourself in court? or allow your accuser to act unjustly and simply take a very valuable possession? Must Christians allow a resource that is being used to facilitate the gospel going to the unreached simply be taken without a fight? What if a Christian crashes into your car and as you're talking you find out that they're actually uninsured, or a Christian builder does some shoddy work for you? Do you let them off? What if someone from church slanders you? Do you always let it go? What we can definitively say is that if you are a follower of Christ, you won't ever try to scam someone. You won't intentionally hurt someone else in order to benefit yourself. And if you happen to be on the receiving end of wrong, there will be times when you relinquish your rights. At other times, it will be our responsibility to have hard conversations with people who are caught up in sin. If you're not certain, then it could be helpful to ask the question, am I responding the way I am just to get what I deserve? Or am I doing this for the benefit of the other? Why are some behaviours out of bounds for Christians? Because we cannot be selfish in our response to Jesus saving us from sin. Having established this first point, Paul in verse 12 begins his response to a letter that the Corinthians have written to him. Corinthians, probably more than any other letter in the Bible, reveals the two-way nature of the communication that was taking place between the church, the recipients, and and Paul, the writer of the letter. Last week we saw that Paul refers to a letter that has since been lost and we can't read it. Likewise, here in verse 12, we have a quote of something that the Corinthians have written to Paul in an attempt to justify their behaviour. And while it is no longer talking about taking others to court, it is still answering our original question, why are some behaviours out of bounds for Christians? Paul's answer? Because our bodies matter. Have a look at verse 12 and 13. I have the right to do anything, you say, But not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. The Corinthians state one liners, which they assume will end all debate. They have a truth which surely trumps anything that Paul can come up with. They believed that any behaviour is a Christian's undeniable right because the body is only temporary after all. Now that may have been because they believed that only our spirit is eternal and kind of like a rocket booster, the body carries us part of the way but then is jettisoned at death. According to that logic, in the end, all that matters is our spirit, so do what you want with your body. Alternatively, their thinking may have been based on thinking like the argument that Paul rejects in Romans chapter 6, that Christians should sin to give God the additional opportunities to pour out grace. Whatever the mistaken logic that led them to their position, Paul shows them that it's wrong because they have an inadequate view of themselves. Some behaviours are out of bounds for Christians because our bodies are the God-given means of expressing who we are. God, our Creator and Saviour, has designed our bodies to be used a certain way. And when we became Christians, we, including our bodies, were united to Jesus, which means that what we do with our bodies is also done to Jesus. We are not islands, independent and free, to do whatever we want. And so questions like, can I be a Christian and take illicit drugs, are the wrong question. Can I, as a Christian, eat terrible food and never exercise? Can I consistently work 80-hour weeks dosed up on caffeine? Again, what we can say with absolute certainty is, That our acceptance by God has nothing to do with smoking or exercise or how many hours we work. We are not right with God because we give up alcohol or stop swearing or treat our families well. We are saved by grace, not by a healthy moral lifestyle. That doesn't mean that how we treat our bodies is irrelevant. It may seem that being saved by grace means that nothing we do with our bodies excludes us from a right relationship with God. And yet our bodies are not something in addition to the real us. Human existence is always in a body. Jesus' bodily resurrection even suggests that our ongoing existence after death will be in a physical body too. And so what we do with our body now reveals what we understand about ourselves and what Jesus has achieved. If we think that our body is only packaging and only our soul matters, then it can lead to some very harmful practices. And so Paul points out the incompatibility of sexual immorality and being united with Jesus, suggesting that this was probably how their wrong belief expressed itself most obviously. Have a look at verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Now, I'm yet to read of a church that suggests or encourages that Christians are free to have sex with prostitutes. So it's possible that Paul is using hyperbolic speech here. But his point is clear. Grace is not a license to sin. There are behaviours that can rightly be called sin, and as Christians we are to flee from them, verse 18. Try as we might to excuse sexual immorality as insignificant, to say that it doesn't hurt anyone, that we're consenting adults so it's okay. They're all futile arguments because they are in rebellion against God. God designed sex for a married man and woman And any sex outside of that design is sin. Sex before marriage, sexting, looking at pornography, sex with someone who is not your marriage partner, and homosexual sex, they are all sin. And when we sin in this way, it hurts not only the other, but ourselves too, verse 18. Why would you do something to hurt yourself? In his final plea, Paul reminds the Corinthians that if we sin sexually, the Holy Spirit is right there in us, being hurt by the process. We are temples, dwelling places of the living God on earth. But when we sin sexually, temples of the living God are used instead for the worship of the God of pleasure. By our actions, we are taking back ownership over that which we have already submitted to God's ownership. So notice how Paul finishes at the end of verse 20. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. He doesn't condemn them. He doesn't say that sexual sin is the unforgivable sin. He doesn't say that this sin, more than any other sin, separates us from God. He doesn't call into question the Corinthian salvation. Rather, if this is a sin that we have fallen into, if this is a practice that we've justified in the past, God is calling us to cleanse the temple. There is no point saying over and over how bad you are. You can't do it by trying harder or promising yourself to fight temptation this time. Flee from sin by running to Jesus. Acknowledge that what you have done, thought or said is not the way God designed you to live. And give thanks that he's already paid the price for it in full. If we are willing to repent, his promise to you is found in 1 John 1.9, which has already been read by Tim. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. I think the journey that we've gone on tonight is quite ironic Coming back to Falao's meme, look at the final four words. Repent, only Jesus saves. I think he's, he's right. I couldn't say it any better than he did. But having zoomed out to see the whole chapter, I'm more convinced than ever that Paul is not writing this to perverted pagans. He's writing it to confused Christians. These words are not in the first instance a meme to share with non-Christian friends on social media to tell them what they need to do. It's not a list of sins to tell others what they need to repent of. These are words for Christians to reflect on, to meditate on, to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal anything that we are doing or approving of that he actually wants us to flee from. May we all take the time that we need to before God and trust in the only one who can save us both from selfishness and sexual immorality. May we interact wisely with others who have hurt us or whom we can help to trust in Jesus to overcome these sins. Let's pray. Gracious Jesus, we thank you so much that you didn't come to condemn the world, you came to save it. And yet there are right behaviours that flow in response to what you have done for us. And so, Lord, whether it's now or whether it's sometime in the coming evening or coming days, enable us to reflect well on the things that we are thinking and doing and saying. Help us to recognise if there are things that we need to repent of, things that Jesus died for. Help us to trust in him. We pray it in his name. Amen.